We as a church have been going through the book of Hebrews together for a number of months. We've made it through, oh, the first four chapters, gotten a little bit into chapter five. Uh, Really enjoying teaching that series, but we're going to push pause on Hebrews for a couple of weeks and today, and on Christmas Eve, next week, and beyond, we're going we're gonna to take some time to really look uh, kind of seasonally at the different things about the season, obviously now being Christmas, and after the first of the year, kind of looking at the new year that God has ahead for us. And so we're going to push pause in Hebrews, get back to that after the new year. Today, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen. And if you don't own a Bible, we actually have some out in the lobby. We'd love to give one to you. That would be our gift to you because we love God's word and we love the teaching from his word. And so I would invite you to uh, open your hearts and prepare to learn from God's word today as we spend this next time together. This is Isaiah 9, verses two through seven. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together, church family. God, we thank you. We thank you for this opportunity, this this season that's set aside once a year to remember the birth of Jesus, the hope of mankind. God, my prayer is that this year at Christmas, we would not just think of Jesus once a year, but this would serve as a reminder of the fact that Jesus is our hope 365 days of the year, 24 hours a day. God, would you help us to see this truth from your word? Would you help me to only teach that which is in line with the truth from your word? And God, would you give us all soft and teachable hearts, hearts that want to respond to your truth? And God, I ask uh, for our time together, may we be focused on Jesus in whose good name we pray. And everybody said, amen. All right, quick survey, quick show of hands. How many of you have Christmas lights hanging up in or on your house somewhere? All right, and this is not just a trick to identify the Grinches among us, right? How many of you still have Christmas lights hanging up from last Christmas, right? I'm just kidding. Oh, a couple of you are very proud, proudly raising your hands. That's that's called efficiency, my friends. 
If, if you have Christmas lights hanging up, uh, tis the season, right? Uh, I remember just uh, last week, I took my family to a, a friend's church. I've made uh, friends with a, a pastor over in Bothell and his church does a big Christmas light display and they have music and all of that. And so it was fun because I, my, my children just loved it. They're standing there. My children, I can't get them to hold still for 30 seconds sometimes. They're just standing there staring at these Christmas lights and this display that's going off. We love lights. We love this season. In fact, uh, we need the lights, you know that there's actually studies that have shown that, that Christmas lights, among other things, actually have a positive emotional and psychological effect on us as humans, particularly during these dark winter months. It can combat things like seasonal affective disorder. Did you know that? Now, you probably need more than just Christmas lights, but they're helpful. You know, we, we, like, um, we like the light and the darkness in particular. Did you know, you may, have, you may have seen this. I read this in the news that a few weeks ago on December 7th, UW announced that December 7th was the darkest day on record in Seattle for the last decade, the second darkest day on record, period. The cloud coverage was so thick and the sun, the angle of the sunlight was so low that it, we, we had the darkest day, the second darkest day that scientists even could record in Seattle. So when you were feeling a little sleepy that next day and were tempted to call in to work, now you know why. We, we don't like the darkness. We don't thrive as human beings in the darkness. We are actually, we're made for light. But how many of you know that when you've been in darkness for any length of time, the light can be somewhat bracing? It can actually be a little bit upsetting. You've been in the darkness on that December 7th day. It was such thick cloud coverage. If the clouds were to suddenly part and the sun started to shine through, you would start to squint. Dare I even say, Seattleites, some of you might've even complained. Don't put it past us Seattleites to complain about something, okay? Uh, you've been in a dark movie theater and you walk outside and there's sunlight. It hurts your eyes. I, I think of my, uh, my daughters, my, my oldest daughter and my youngest daughter share a room. The oldest one has to get up for school in the morning. The youngest one doesn't. She's only two, but the oldest one, does she care? No, she jumps out. She flips the light switch on and starts getting ready for school and the little two-year-old starts yelling at her, too bright, too bright. You know, we crave the light, but when the light is flipped on, sometimes it's hard for us to adjust. You'll notice in our passage today, it talks about people dwelling in deep darkness, but all of a sudden, a great light begins to shine. A great light begins to shine in the darkness. And I would say to you that just like the analogy of, of, of bright light to our physical eyes, we need the light, but sometimes it can be a little bit disconcerting. Here's, here's the big idea. When we talk about Jesus coming to earth in Christmas time, we are talking about the brightest light that has ever shone shining into the darkest darkness that we've ever seen. And we need it, but sometimes it upsets us. When we talk, here's, here's, here's where I'm actually gonna take this. When we talk about Jesus coming, this light is actually a declaration of war on the darkness itself. Did you know that Christmas was a declaration of war? Did you know that Christmas is the opening shots fired in a great battle between light and darkness? So I want to set up our context. I want to set up uh, so that we can understand what the prophet Isaiah is, is speaking from. The prophet Isaiah is writing approximately 700 years before Jesus was ever born. 
And first of all, those of you who know some of the things that Isaiah wrote, people call Isaiah's book, his, his book of prophecy, sometimes they call it the fifth gospel because it talks so much about Jesus. It talks so accurately about Jesus, even hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born. But Isaiah is writing in a time of great darkness. Here's a, a brief background, a brief uh, context so that we can be caught up to the story, okay? God chooses a people, his people of Israel, but they are, end up in slavery in Egypt. And God does this amazing, miraculous work through, through Moses. And he, he frees his people out of slavery in Egypt. You guys remember the story of the Exodus? We've been talking about it a lot in Hebrews. God frees his people. He leads them through the desert. He leads them out into a land uh, that the Bible says is flowing with milk and honey. It's a good land. They get their own place. They get to move in, have a place to call their own. And then they actually get to become a kingdom. They're not just a nomadic people. Now they have kings. God establishes a kingdom under kings like Saul and eventually King David, the one that God chooses to, to have his family be the king, the line of kings forever. But there's a problem. Things look good. They've got a home. They've got a land. They've got a king. But there's this big problem where they keep worshiping false gods. They keep ignoring the commandments that God gave them to worship God and worship him alone. They keep worshiping false gods. And so God is merciful and gracious and forgiving for century after century. And he gives them warnings. He says, stop worshiping false, false gods. Uh, I will bring judgment upon you. I, I want you to turn to me. I want you to, to worship me. But eventually this kingdom splits in half. They have a civil war. The Northern tribes become known as the kingdom of Israel and the southern tribes become known as the, the kingdom of Judah. And, and you'd think, okay, well, maybe they split and one group's gonna choose to follow God and the other one's not. Unfortunately, it's just not that tidy of a story. Judah does a little bit better than Israel. But they both continue to worship false gods. They both continue to turn aside. And eventually God, after centuries of patience and grace and mercy, he does bring judgment on them. And the northern tribes are deported by the kingdom of Assyria, approximately 740 BC. This is actual real historical fact. You can find this in most uh, ancient Near Eastern textbooks. And then the southern tribes later were captured by Babylon about 597 BC. So a little less than 150 years later. Now, here's where I tell, all of you, tell you all of this. The prophet Isaiah, he is writing around 700 BC. He is writing during the time that the people just to the north of him are being conquered, executed, taken away from their homeland and being put into slavery. He is writing during a time of great upheaval. He is writing during a time of great darkness. You know what's interesting? Isaiah starts to speak when the people would have heard this, this prophecy that we're gonna unpack here, they would have started to think about an earthly king, a natural born king who would lead the nation of Israel, maybe get them out of slavery, maybe reunify the two kingdoms. I don't think the original hearers even, even fully knew just how good of a plan God had. I think, this is my opinion, but I don't even think Isaiah fully knew just how good of news he was proclaiming here. God had a plan that was so much bigger and so much better than just restoring one kingdom. God had a plan that was to bring people from every nation and tongue and tribe on the earth into his good kingdom, the kingdom that the Bible calls the kingdom of light. So 
Let's unpack this. Listen, I wanna talk to you about some good news, but first we're gonna talk about the bad news, right? This will be your uplifting, cheerful Christmas sermon, right? Deep darkness, let's go there. Listen, I joke, but if we don't look at how bad the bad news is, then we can't fully appreciate just how good the good news is. There is good news, but sometimes we as, as people are quick to, to gloss over the bad news because we don't want to look at how bad the problem really is. No, the problem is really bad. We really need help. We really need rescue. First of all, it says they're walking in deep darkness. This is in verse two. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shined. Think about darkness. Think about darkness as a metaphor. What a powerful metaphor. I'm not asking anybody to, to raise your hand, but how many of you are scared of the dark? If, if I was to ask the, the guys back in the, the tech booth, the production booth, to just black out the lights right now and shut that door, we're in a windowless room, it would be very dark. Think about what would happen, okay? Number one, many of you would have great fear. It'd be fearful. You're in the dark. You don't know what's out there. You don't know what's happening. Some of you would, would start to try to take action and you start running around and you know what would happen? You'd cause all sorts of injury to yourself and others. Some guys' wives are like nodding their heads right now, right? Some of you would get very focused on yourself. I don't know what else is going on out there. I don't know what everybody else is dealing with, but I'm gonna take care of mine. I'm gonna make sure my wife is safe. I'm gonna make sure my kids are safe. I'm gonna make sure my iPhone is safe, right? Become very focused on self and... Some of you, some of you might opt to just curl up in a ball on the floor and wait for somebody else to deal with the problem. You'd be isolate, isolated. That's what we would do if we were suddenly plunged into deep darkness here. But think about how that corresponds spiritually. This idea of darkness is actually a powerful metaphor because the Bible says that God is light. The Bible says that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And the Bible says that separation from God is akin to living in spiritual darkness. That when you read the story of our first parents, Adam and Eve, when they sinned against God in the garden, that relationship with God was separated, that there was, there was a breach in relationship, that mankind, ever since their sin and rebellion, has not had the same type of access to the pure light of God that we were created for. And each and every single one of us, both by inherited nature from Adam and Eve, but also by our own choice, we have been plunged into darkness. Each and every single one of us at some point or another has chosen darkness. Can I get an amen from anybody? We've all chosen darkness. And the Bible says that we were created for relationship with God in that pure spiritual light, but because of our sin and our rebellion, we dwell in deep darkness. And think about how the analogy still holds true in our spiritual darkness. Is there fear? People who are in spiritual darkness have fear, don't they? Does God love me? Am I good enough for God? What's gonna happen in the future? Does spiritual darkness cause injury? Do people who live in spiritual darkness run around not sure what they're doing, causing harm to themselves and to others? Yeah. Does spiritual darkness cause self-focus? We can't see the needs and the problems and the cares and the concerns of others. We only focus on ourselves. Does spiritual darkness cause isolation? Yeah, some people's response to spiritual darkness is to 
curl up in a ball, as it were, in their souls and avoid contact with anyone else. Spiritual darkness is a big problem. The prophet Isaiah is not just speaking of dark days as in war and bloodshed. He's talking about even bigger spiritual darkness. Second thing as part of the problem is burdens and oppression. In verse four, it talks about the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. So here's the thing about darkness. When people are in darkness, wicked men like to take advantage of that. Think about the days after World War I. Uh, I'm not an expert by any means, so some of you may correct me on this, but, but my understanding is after World War I, the nation of Germany was left in a great place of turmoil. And a man by the name of Adolf Hitler rose to power and to prominence, offering to unify the nation and restore it to glory. He turned out to be one of the worst and most evil dictators, one of the worst oppressors that the world has ever known. In times of great need, in times of great darkness, oppressors will rise up. And actually, spiritually speaking, that's what's happened. In our being plunged into spiritual darkness, one whom the Bible calls the evil one or the devil or Satan raised up and said, I am now in charge. I'm now the God of this world. And actually, the Bible would speak of Satan as the prince of the power of the air, the one who holds this world in bondage to fear of death. Every oppressor that the world has ever known is just doing their best impersonation of the great oppressor himself, Satan. How many of you know that, that oppression and slavery is not something that was just limited to Bible times? How many of you know that even in our own nation, slavery is not done when the Civil War was ended? That there are many to this day who experience all forms of oppression and exploitation and yes, even slavery. There are still oppressors out there. The world is still a very broken place. And number three, there's War and death. Notice what it said in verse five. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. You don't, uh, by the way, some of you probably have Christmas cards on your fridge or on your mantle with these verses on them. You probably don't have the boot of the tramping warrior and the garments rolled in blood on them. They kind of edit those parts out, but that's in here. That's part of what we're talking about. Warfare and violence. Is bloodshed and death and war limited to just Bible times? How many of you uh, have friends or family who are gonna spend this Christmas overseas as part of our armed forces? Handful of you. How many of you have known people who have spent time overseas defending our freedoms? How many of you feel like every time you turn on the news or social media, it seems like more nations are at war with each other? And some would argue, well, it's the same amount of war. We just now have better access to it. Fair enough. It's still pretty overwhelming. Would you agree? Warfare and oppression and darkness. This is the situation we find ourselves in. Humanity doesn't have a very good track record about picking ourselves up by the bootstraps, do we? I wish, I, I really wish I had taken the time to 
dig deep and find the reference. It was, I was too busy this week, but I remember reading uh, an article where the author was quoting a few different people uh, in the mid-1900s who had said, by the early part of the 21st century, warfare will be done with. And I just wanted to find them so I could publicly humiliate them. <laughs> that would be my Christmas gift, right? Oh, we believe in progress. We're getting so much better as a species. Humanity is moving towards... That's not, that's not the way I'm reading history. Looks like we still have the same problems. Looks like we still have darkness. We still have oppression. We still have warfare and bloodshed. Listen, the situation is bad. And the last thing in the world that we need is someone to show up and say, hey, I'm gonna be born and be a really good example for you all to follow so that you can clean up the mess that you've started. No, what we need is we need help. We need a rescuer. We need a redeemer. Not to give away the end of the sermon, but guess what? His name is Jesus. Where there is darkness, a great light is going to shine. Where there is oppression, a great king is going to be raised up to break the back of all those who are oppressors. Where there is warfare and bloodshed, one who is called a prince of peace is going to be born. His name is Jesus, church. Let's look at him. He's in verse six. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. The government, interesting word, shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I want you to see a couple of things about this child who is going to be born. First of all, he's going to be a gift. A gift for to us, a child is born. Not just a child will be born, not just a son will be born, a son will be given. The thing about a gift is you can't earn it and you don't deserve it. If you could, then that's no longer, by definition, a gift. This son is going to be born not just because, but specifically for us, for his people. And he's not just going to be any ordinary gift. The second thing I want you to see is this. He will be a king. This child will be a king. Isn't it interesting how the word government shows up there? Isn't it interesting how in verse 7, one of the verses we already looked at in the read-through, it says he'll come from the line of David. David was the only halfway decent king that the people of Israel had ever known. And even he was a pretty colossal train wreck. Read his story, First and Second Samuel it's depressing. Wait till the sun comes back out and then read it, right? But God made a promise to David. God said, I love you, David. You're a man after my own heart, despite your sins and your flaws and your failures. I choose to make you and your lineage the perpetual kings over my people. Jesus was born from the lineage of David. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the city where David was born. It's called the city of David. Think about this. This verse is the birth announcement of a king. It's the birth announcement of a king. How many of you, when your children were born, sent out birth announcements? Did any of you put on the birth announcement, by the way, our son is the king? <laughs> no, you did not. This is, this is God the Father announcing his baby boy, his son, the one who's going to be king. And here's, here's what's interesting. It says the government shall be on his shoulder. One of the great tragedies 
of the way that we in the West, way, the way that we in the United States in particular approach Christmas or the Bible or Jesus in general is we like to relegate Jesus to the world of spiritual things. And then real world practical things, they're over here. I would submit to you that the Bible draws no such distinction. That God and this king care about all of life. Uh, a few weeks ago, after the, the tragic shootings in San Bernardino, California, this is just a, a, a very clear example of this, there was a newspaper, I can't remember exactly which one, I think it was New York Post, ran a front page article and it said, God isn't fixing this. And they showed various politicians who were sending out messages on social media, our thoughts and prayers are with the victims of San Bernardino. What the message of that article was, look, that's great that your thoughts and your prayers are with the people, but we need to actually do something because God isn't doing anything. God isn't fixing this. You keep your religion over there. We who want to actually try to fix the problem and address the problem, we're going to deal with it with real world solutions. I actually didn't know that prayer shaming was a term until that article came out. That's a, that's a classic example of how many in our culture try to take the message of Jesus, his, his confrontational message, and say, yeah, well, that, that belongs in the world of spiritual things, but with real-life problems, we need real-life solutions. My, my friends, it says the government will be on his shoulders. That means he has desires to address anything and everything in this broken world. We already talked about darkness. We talked about oppression. We talked about war and death. It's all under his purview. I like the way that uh, one Bible scholar, N.T. Wright, puts it. He says this, the Christmas story, like Isaiah's prophecy, isn't about an escape from the real world of politics and economics, of empires and taxes and bloodthirsty wars. It's about God addressing these problems at last from within coming into our world, his world, and shouldering the burden of authority, coming to deal with the problems of evil, of chaos and violence and oppression in all their horrible forms. And only when we look hard at these promises and come to grips with what they really mean are we able to grasp the real comfort and joy that Christmas does truly provide. Isn't that well put? There's not a spiritual world and a pragmatic world. God says, I'm gonna deal with all the issues and I'm gonna deal with them through this son. I'm gonna deal with them through this king. And he'll be no ordinary king. He'll be the most unique king ever. You know why? He'll be an eternal king. The nature of kings is they come and go. Every four years, we have a reminder in this nation that presidents come and go. And I know some of you are like, I wish some of them would come and go faster, right? But here's the deal. Kings come and go, but not this king. Look at, his, look at his names. By the way, names in the Bible have meaning. Names have meaning. When we, when we prayed over the, the babies this morning and dedicated them, some of the parents shared the name and the meaning of the name of their, their baby because names have meaning. Well, even more so in the biblical world, names have a ton of meaning. Look at, look at these four names. The first is this, wonderful counselor. This son, this king, this child, he'll be a wonderful counselor, 
Wonderful meaning wonderful, meaning not average, not run of the mill, not, you know, ho-hum, awesome, amazing, wonderful. And counselor, how many places do we look in life for counsel and advice and help? Seems like we have advice and advisors in, in virtually every area of our lives. We have, we have uh, financial advisors and we have counselors that we go and see for our uh, emotional problems. We have, uh, uh, you know, school counselors and guidance counselors to help us. We have career counselors who guide us in our vocational pursuits. We, we look all sorts of places for counsel. Jesus will be the wonderful counselor, meaning he will speak the truth that we so desperately need. But I want you to see something about this, okay? Wonderful counselor, yes, it has a broader meaning, but think about the context of this passage we're looking at. What's the context? A king, warfare. It could be said that he will be a wonderful military strategist. Think about that. A wonderful military strategist. Just like our president has strategists and counselors and advisors, this son, this king will be himself a wonderful counselor. Here's what this means. Here's what this means. It means that he'll have a plan of attack. It means that this king isn't gonna be born and then just wing it. It means he's coming with a plan. Did you know that the Bible says that this plan was for this king to be born in obscurity? That the plan was for this king to be raised in the, 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 the countryside as a peasant and at the age of 30 to begin a, a teaching ministry? And after a few years of, of public teaching and, and preaching and ministering, that, that his own uh, friend would betray him and the government authorities and the religious leaders would conspire against him and that this king, part of his plan from day one was to die on a cross. That was part of his plan from day one. He had a wonderful plan, an awe-inspiring plan, one that no other king has ever thought to try because every other king in the whole history of the world is, I will kill my enemies. Our king says, I will die for my enemies and turn them into friends and family. That's our king. That's his plan. Oh, and by the way, on the third day, he'll rise from death again and prove that he has all authority over death, all authority over sin, all authority over the darkness, and he's risen and alive forevermore. That's our wonderful counselor. That's his, that's his name. That's a good king, but it gets better. Number two, a mighty God. This king won't just be any person. He'll be mighty. That means he'll actually be powerful enough to accomplish what he set out to do. And God, he'll be divine, He'll be divine. Jesus is not just a mere man who got really close to God. Jesus is not just a good teacher. He is the son of God himself. God taken on humanity, adding to his divinity, humanity. The incarnation, Christmas is not a subtraction problem. It's an addition problem. Fully God and fully man. And he's not like, partially God, not God light or diet God, fully God. I may have just coined that term here this morning myself, diet God. That's a, that'll be a catchy book title somebody needs to write. He'll be a mighty God. He'll be an everlasting father. Now, I just want you to understand this is not necessarily a Trinitarian formula. This is not saying the son will be the father. We know that there's difference between the father and the son. But what he's saying is, A, everlasting. He'll be in charge. He'll be the king forever. 
He's never gonna, never gonna be voted out of power, never gonna have to hand his throne off to somebody else. And he'll lead and love the people like a father. He will not just be another dictator who comes in and keeps the people under his thumb. He will lead and love and care for the people like a father does. What do fathers do? Fathers protect and fathers provide. And fathers love and fathers nurture and fathers care. I was actually reading because when I was reading this, this passage, it triggered something from, I think, my, my fifth grade American history class. George Washington was called the father of this nation. That's a, a title that people use for just a man. You know why? Because he really loved the people that he led. The soldiers who followed him knew that they were loved. He was the father of a nation. It's kind of like that. This king, Jesus, will be like an everlasting father to this people. And number four, he'll be the prince of peace. The prince of peace. Oh, wouldn't it be great to live in a land where the king, the ruler was known as the prince of peace? How many of you would love some peace in your life, in our world? The great irony here is that when the prince of peace showed up, we killed him. We did violence to him. But the good news is, again, through his death, we find our forgiveness, we find our healing. This is our king. And notice what will happen. Number, verse seven, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal or the passion of the Lord of hosts will do this. Notice the word increase. Notice the word increase. How many of you would agree with, would agree with me that today we do not see things fully perfected? We don't yet see things fully perfected. We don't see perfect peace. You know that there's still brokenness in the world, right? But what happened was that first time that Jesus came, his birth, this was the opening shots of a war. A war on darkness, a war on sin, a war on death itself. And the Bible would tell of another time when Jesus is gonna come. At the end of the age, when he'll return, as it says, on the clouds of heaven. And everything that he started with his first coming will come to fruition with his second coming. And all of those who place their hope and their trust in Christ Jesus will live with him forever in a world of shalom, a world of peace, a world free from sin, from brokenness, from devastation, from sickness, and yes, from death itself. Friends, that's the promise of the gospel, that what Jesus started with his first coming is gonna continue to increase and grow and grow and grow until the day of his second coming. And we eagerly await that day, do we not, my friends? We eagerly await that day. We eagerly await that day. We're watching the increase of his government. And actually, if you come back next Sunday, you'll get to hear a little bit more about how the increase of his government actually goes out through us. Those of us who have been brought into his kingdom now living as lights, Jesus says, you are the light of the world, but I'm getting ahead of myself. That'll be next week. Let me just close with this thought. You probably, like I said, have a handful of Christmas cards on your mantle or on your fridge with these verses on it. 
you probably didn't notice that these are warfare verses. You saw the, the nice verse about, oh, a bright light is shown. Yeah, it's, it's the bright light of an air raid siren. It's a war on sin and death. This, this, this Christmas, when you see Christmas lights all over the place, your own house, other people's house, except for you Grinches, we're praying for you, your heart can grow 10 sizes today, we promise, right? There's Christmas lights everywhere. When you see lights, you have, you have two choices. Choice number one is you can kind of go the, the white Christmas lyrics where may your days be merry and bright, right? You're, gonna, you're just gonna have kind of a warm, fuzzy, sentimental feel. Oh, aren't those lights so nice? Or you can remember that Jesus is the great light who shone into the deep darkness and said, I'm here to declare war on darkness. I'm recruiting for my army. I'm promising eternal life. Join in. And you can look at Christmas as war. A war that's already been won. And it's guaranteed because Jesus died and rose again. So may our focus be on Jesus. May our hope be in Jesus. And may those of us who are Christians seek to live as lights following the great light. His name is Jesus. And I want to call us to a time of response now. We're going to respond as we do in a variety of ways. The first way is through the giving of our tithes and offerings. Listen, if you are a guest or a visitor, you are under no obligation to give. You're, you're welcome to if you'd like. You can give in these offering baskets. You can give online or text to give. There's information in your connect card. But for any of you who give, let's give with a heart of worship. Let's remember that this Christmas is about God giving his son to us, Jesus being a gift to us. And so let's give from that heart of joyful response, never guilt, never obligation. While they're collecting the offering, let me read a few discussion questions, things for us to talk about this week in our community groups. Number one, as you consider the deep darkness in the world, which areas break your heart the most and how might God be asking you to help? You know, we all have different areas of focus. We all have different spiritual gifts. There might be certain areas of brokenness in the world that just particularly trouble you and maybe God's asking you to, to help do something about it. Number two, of the four titles used for Jesus, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, which one is the most meaningful to you and why? Maybe which one stood out to you? And then number three, Jesus was born to defeat death by his own death. Why is that such good news? We can never forget that Christmas is actually about a tree. It's not this tree, it's about the tree that Jesus was nailed to for our forgiveness. We don't just like to talk, we like to pray as well as a church. And so here's some things to pray about. Pray for God's light to shine in areas of darkness in the world. Maybe there are specific things that God puts on your heart or in your community group, specific things that God leads you to pray about. And number two, pray that God would use you as a light of his love. The next way we're gonna respond is through a celebration of the Lord's table, through communion. And I want you to understand that today when we take communion, let's remember that it's in the broken body and the poured out blood of Jesus that we find our freedom from darkness. That when Jesus was crucified, he did so that we might be set free from darkness and brought into his light. Communion is for Christians. If you are a Christian, if you have placed your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you are welcome to join us at the table, even if you're a guest or a visitor. If you are not a Christian, I would ask you to refrain 
and either just reflect on why this is so meaningful for us as Christians, or here's an even better offer. Come join. Step out of the darkness. Step into his light. The invitation's wide open. He's a good king. He's a loving king. Yeah, he knows the shame and the guilt and the burdens that you carry. And his offer is still one of grace and mercy and forgiveness. Bring it all to him. And we're gonna sing. Our, uh, our uh, Sound City, him and her, she and him, are gonna lead us, gonna lead us in some Christmas tunes and some songs that are more familiar, invite you to sing. We don't, we don't have a big band today. You know why? You're the band. God doesn't, God doesn't, he's not impressed by big showiness. You know what he loves? He loves it when our hearts are engaged before him. So I invite you to sing. This, this first song we're gonna sing is probably unfamiliar for many of you, but the lyrics fit very well, this theme of, of God declaring war on sin and death. So I would encourage you to reflect on these words, sing along as you're able, and then when you catch on, just sing out loud. Let's praise this king who is our King Jesus. Let's stand together. I'll pray. God, we thank you that we who were in darkness have seen a great light. God, we haven't seen a great light because of our amazing wisdom or our uh, just awesomeness. God, you had mercy on us. You had compassion on us and you shone a great light. God, I pray for those who are here today who are not yet Christians. God, I pray you would give them the faith it takes to step into that light for the first time. God, for those of us who are Christians, may we draw closer to you in that light, walking in greater and greater measure in the light, more so now than than even the first day that we met you. And may we do so for the glory of our Savior Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.